This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right. So I am sitting here. And I am talking to Dan Treeline. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. So uh, can you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? So uh, I'm a forager and herbalist, mostly. Really interested in survival skills, primitive living skills, things like that. Um, Hunting in a natural way. And I currently reside in northern New Jersey. And I do workshops and classes here. And uh, for the last couple of years, I would tour across the country and do some classes. But post-apocalyptic world, I'm just uh, settling into one spot and building up kind of a school on one, on one spot. So it's currently what I've been up to a bit. So when you were traveling and touring, were you also uh, learning certain things from other people? Or was it uh, just kind of like a develop other people's skills? Well, I've always tried, I mean, a large part of what made me start traveling was realized that I wanted to learn lineage and tradition. And there was a lot of people out there who knew a lot of things, homesteading things. And yet I knew didn't have a lot of people who were really interested in it. So a lot of my travel has been connecting with people who show me a aspect of life homesteading life, hunting, traditional practices, and also doing workshops and classes around those areas to kind of support the venture. So that's pretty much what I've been doing is finding homesteaders, freaks of all sorts, and just learning from them and feeling like the, you know, there's nothing better than sitting with somebody who knows what you want to learn. Absolutely. I, in fact, I was just talking about that with uh, one of my friends and his dad at their uh deer deer camp down in southern illinois we were talking about that and just kind of lost skills that uh mm-hmm. really and, and what's crazy is it hasn't been that long since these skills have been lost but it seems like an eternity that people just aren't getting back to them and and uh, wanting to try and learn those and preserve them and teach them to you know the future generations my children i just 
I feel that that's so important. And you and I were talking a little bit about it before that you were learning the skill of like dry stacking stones and, and, uh, you know, using cob mortar and stuff like that, that, you know, just stuff that's pretty much lost, but I've seen some foundations on some homes around here, even that, that were, you know, dry stacked foundations with limestone and, and, uh, houses that the structure is still standing you know two three hundred years later it's just amazing yeah that's the thing about you know what we could call ancestral skills is a lot of them are more effective more efficient more sustainable more green more local than what we have going on and so eventually you kind of return to realizing that okay like our our quest for technology wasn't necessarily to better our situation it was kind of to get distracted to come back to some simple building techniques there's where i'm staying now there's a whole bunch of dry stack rock foundations from cabins from you know three four hundred years ago they're still better off than most concrete foundations from 50 to 70 years ago so it's uh you know we've we've gotten to the point where we assume that what we were doing was better and more effective and it turns out that you know a cob house can be earthquake proof and you know, uh, better for wildfire conditions than a modern linoleum siding, flammable petroleum based house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, we, we were looking at a bunch of, uh, hand like rough sawn hand hewn beams or hand hewn mm-hmm. out of logs and people made, I mean, like one of the main beams in, uh, I think in their cabin was actually taken that somebody hand drew from a tree and used it in like a barn as the main beam and they took it out and recycled it. And so who yeah. knows how old that beam actually is. And it's still the strongest, right. you know, piece of their structure. And it's just amazing. Right. Um, right. Know, right. It's, it's pretty cool to, to try yeah, to learn that stuff. It's funny you mentioned, cause my, my buddy Charlie uh, is obsessed with hewing beams and is on the fringes of the Amish out here. And, uh, he got me into it. And so we've been hewing uh, beams for him. He's also building a cabin. And it's really interesting because there's this rough hewed hewing technique and then there's like fine hewing and planing. And he is so meticulous. He's planing all his beams, making them look super nice. And then I'm currently staying where a house has these very rough hewn beams. It, it, it looks like somebody hacked at them. And it's really interesting. It drives him nuts, but it kind of gives this aesthetic, you know. And so, uh, well, yeah, we've been cutting down a couple of trees and hewing beams and learning that technique. And I actually got amazed how efficient and quick it was. I thought that would take forever. And so he's kind of pulling me into that dimension. So we made a couple of beams here as well. And uh, getting really into the idea of, okay, take down a tree, turn it into a beam. I think that's, it says something, it's it's weird because you would think it would take forever. You think about yeah. how long certain things used to take, but at the same time, I mean, some some people, you know, build a cabin and, you know, they cut the logs and, and rough, the, rough them to where the bark's off of them. And the next year they come back and build a cabin in a week or two. And it's just amazing feats and, and the skills that are gone you know, with, with the hand woodworking stuff. And I mean, I mean, there's some craftsmen out there that still do that kind of stuff, but it, it's slowly completely dying off other than a few people still preserving it. Yeah. Until, I mean, the Amish are, you know, almost famous for it out here, you know, restoration of barns and stuff. So, you know, there is some lineage left and, uh, it's surprisingly, you know, me and my friend Charlie, I was learning for the first time. We took down a tree, we cut it into a 16-foot section, we hewed it out four square in three days, you know? Yeah, no, that's actually pretty good. Um, so what are you, what, what's, what is your buddy Charlie doing then? Is he going to build a cabin and actually live in it, or what's the plan with that? That's his plan for sure. And, uh, you know, I feel like one of the things that's happening is me and a lot of friends are just trying to explore these skills to see what they're about. And then from there, we have goals as far as how to utilize them. And then it's a matter of how many people are going to come help in order to get this done faster. And so we're kind of like in the training other people to do some of these things. Like he showed me 
And then I'm the first person who was sitting there with him for hours, you know, and he's sitting there by himself for hours. And so <laughs> we're kind of bringing in all these, you know, ancestral practices. But obviously, if you have 10 people deep, you can get it done. So he's building a cabin. Uh, you know, he built the whole rock foundation. And now it's just a matter of, you know, the mortise and tenon cutting all the joinery and getting a foundation up. And then from there, uh, you know, whatever he's going to use. And wow. so we're uh, starting to do workshops on it. You know, we're going to do a, a class a workshop, weekend workshop called like wood chucking or something. <laughs> how, to be, how to be a wood chuck. <laughs> no, that's pretty cool. So let's, I kind of want to talk about like, how and why did you get into foraging? I mean, where did that start? And then like, how, how did you end up learning as much as you did? All right. Well, so basically my mom was always into photography of nature and she always grew plants and she introduced me to a couple plants like queen Anne's lace and, you know, mugwort and, you know, she had whatever She didn't have a great relationship with mugwort, but she knew what it was. And uh, then I started getting into photographing mushrooms and I started to then realize some of them were edible. And so I spent a lot of time on the internet and books, just trying to figure out which ones were what based on the pictures that I was taking. And so I would go out and I would walk the same trails day after day after day. Cause at first I didn't know anything about the mushroom cycles. And so I would just go out there almost every single day. And, uh, I ended up pretty much, I feel like I made a pact with nature and I was like, I'm going to either see garbage out of the corner of my eye or it's going to be a mushroom. So I would just wander this area near where I grew up and sometimes it would be garbage and I'd fill up bags of garbage with all kinds of stuff and I'd throw that out. And then I found a bunch of mushrooms and in about two years, uh, I found my first edible mushrooms, honey mushrooms, and I took them home. I put them on an internet forum to make sure that I was a hundred percent correct. I cooked up, you know, five mushrooms. I showed my mom. These are the mushrooms that I'm about to eat. I ate a small amount just to see, make sure that nothing bad happened. And from there, I realized that I did it, that I didn't die. <laughs> and from that, from like, it was such a, it was such a, a revelation that, wow, you know what? I'm not too stupid to do this as my society is saying. And then from there, I, you know, started getting really into mushroom identification and then realized some of the plants were edible. And then it was a lot easier to identify plants than it is mushrooms. So I kind of got that training and actually a, a really interesting thing had happened, which I became the mushroom eating, you know, kid in the family and my whole family kind of had jokes about it. And one time my grandpa was like, oh, where do you go to get mushrooms? And I told him the spot I was going to. And he had told me that actually his grandparents from Italy would come and mushroom plant in those same woods. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I feel like the lineage kind of gets you if you're, if you're willing to wander and look around. So how old uh, were you when, when you first started doing that then? Were you I think I was about nine. 19 okay. when i started getting into mushroom identification and a lot of it came from uh you know understanding that there was this thing called shamanism and there's these like you know claims of otherworldly encounters and listening to nature in a deeper way and i kind of had an idea that maybe there was more truth to that than my society had led me to believe since it was around for thirty thousand years or so <laughs> And everybody kind of came to the same conclusions about it. I was like, maybe there's something to this. So I kind of started, you know, uh, looking around and then it sort of morphed into, okay, well, if I needed to survive, could I eat out of the woods? And then, of course, that eventually led me to being like, okay, I can't do this on a vegan diet. I need some fat and protein and then looking at the whole spectrum of okay well now it's either grocery store or keep on pursuing you know a variation of calories and so then of course with uh, 2012 you know i don't know if you remember like the mayan apocalypse that was you know 
Was that 2012? Man, that seems like yeah. forever ago. I know, right? Yeah. And so at that 12, time, 21, had, 12, right? It was that there one. you go. Yep, 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 yep. And yeah. so I knew that the, the fifth dimension wasn't going to enter or something, but I did feel like, you know what? I, I have a feeling that it's going to come to come down to pandemics. And I started then around 2012 shifting to what I would consider like pandemic herbalism, just because I felt like either it's a great ploy for evil government control, or it's inevitable based on how we treat the environment that it's going to eventually heave and start throwing pandemics at us. So that's kind of where mushrooms to pandemics and <laughs> or even the environment does it and other people from yeah. labs throw them at us but <laughs> right that's the thing either way it's yeah. gonna happen that's kind of was my intuition back in the day yeah i was kind of so, hoping the whole 12 21 12 thing kind of happened you know back then i didn't uh, have kids so it was a little bit different you know it wasn't as scary trying to navigate through it even though i did not have the apocalyptic skills i probably needed and still probably don't have all i needed but right. um, thankfully i've got cool people like you to talk to and uh, learn as much as i can from them so let's kind of talk about like what point did you that was kind of your transition point to where you wanted to get into the medicine and the herbalism but were you already identifying these plants at that point or was it kind of just like an evolutionary journey to try and get to that point I had gotten pretty good at mushroom and plant identification before I got into the sense of herbalism on a larger scale. And um, so within that inkling of feeling like, okay, pandemic herbalism, knowing what is around me all the time kind of already was a connection. And, uh, you know, from there, it just all sort of blended together and i started to connect the dots between um you know the plants outside and the survival capacity with them plus the fact that most of them have you know chemical derivatives uh you know i forget what it is is in pine now and uh there's uh, tamiflu in spruce and you know, just making all the connections that, wow, a lot of these things that are now synthesized and sold over the counter were originated, taken out of plants. And those plants are in the backyard instead of those plants need to be exotically harvested in China. <laughs> it's wow. A lot of these are in the backyard. And so the idea of working with weeds, working with invasive weeds, has been a huge factor in all of it as far as creating access, you know, not, not exoticizing it, but realizing that nature repeats herself. And if you have an anti-inflammatory in Guam, you also have one in your backyard, you know? So let's kind of, let's go into that a little bit then. So like, I've got a friend that you, you just mentioned, uh, what, I, what kind of bark spruce bark or something like that. But so I've got a friend that has like, pine bark or spruce bark and they keep it in water or some kind of the uh decoction i guess you would call it i don't know um and they drink off of it all winter long to keep their immune system boosted like what's what's the purpose or principle behind something like that well you know you have two factors one is you look at studies and it shows that consumption of all these chemicals are beneficial to the immune system this that and the other thing um, the other thing is that I like to think more in the wider spectrum of we have been consuming plant chemistry for out, however long you want to trace back hominid evolution. As soon as we had fire, we had tea, you know, if not just to sterilize water, if not just to change it up a little bit. And so a lot of what we have as what we think is immune system, again, it's like forest forest isn't a thing that happened and now we view it forest is a continual thing the same with our immune systems and so we think the immune system was created in the past and now benefits us in the present but we forget that the immune system is continually pushed by the relationship we've always had with consuming thousands and thousands of plants around us so therefore we have receptors and therefore, we're not plugging those receptors. And so we just have done, you know, uh, Neanderthal being 2 million years of drinking 
spruce tea and pine tea and lemon balm tea and whatever you 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 know you want to name and eating dandelions and nettle and now we have those receptor sites and we're not we're not flushing them we're not plugging them with the same chemistry that has built our immune system initially so with that being said is there some type of chemicals or compounds in them that like our receptors are picking up or what would it be yeah there's there's 10,000, you know, in, in one plant, there's 10, 20, 30,000 chemicals. But what we have is this very isolated ingredient perspective. So what we want to know is what is the active ingredient and what is the one that actually does the thing? But it turns out that when you think about pine, there's 10,000 chemicals and they all do something. Okay. And what we do is we perfect it by isolating out a chemical and then making an over-the-counter pharmaceutical that has these side effects and somebody gets addicted to it and somebody starts snorting it and somebody starts <laughs> shooting it and it goes on a crazy rat race and then we blame the pine tree kind of like when, you know, the wild lettuce or something right like yeah it actually right, has, right. has compounds in it that are helpful for pain and, and inflammation and different things like that right is that uh, right. what 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 is that called with the sap that comes out of that uh, the there's sap and it would be called a uh, analgesic or a painkiller. Okay. So it has painkilling properties. So let's kind of go into like, let's break it down a little bit. So like, say, say you've got an injury or something or something that needs to be treated for like to keep out infection. What kind of mm -hmm. stuff would you be using to try and treat that wound, like to make a poultice or uh, otherwise? All right. So, um, you know, the, the ancestral idea of Uncle Ugg walks up to a pine tree and goes, hey, I have a boo-boo and this pine tree has a boo-boo and starts rubbing this pine sap on the boo-boo and goes, wow, this shit works. You know, and 10,000 years later, we have plastic band-aids or whatever. And so going to, OK, pine sap is very helpful for keeping out infections, um, healing wounds, things like that. However a an infection starts spreading not only from the skin but also into the blood and so by treating internally as well you're going to have a better chance against an infection so if you're swallowing some pine sap as well as putting it on your cut then you're actually uh touching two bases instead of one and often the times is we think that something happening topical is just a topical issue, but it almost never is. It's also an internal issue. And so if people are treating both internally and topically, they're going to have better results. Interesting. So would you treat with the same thing or would you uh, treat with something else like a tea or, um, you know, I mean, how, how would you be ingesting that? Would you use some type of mushroom that would be some type of anti or how, how would you go about that then? As well, so if, if for a specific case of like an infection, sure. like if you're yes. in the woods and you get an infection, so uh, first thing is you want to sterilize it. And so you don't need to sterilize it with hydrogen peroxide. You, you know, honey, for example, not an easy thing to find in the wild, but um, honey has hydrogen peroxide in it. So you can actually put honey on your cut. Um, the other thing is alcohol, right? Iodine. Black walnut hull has iodine in it, so you can make black walnut tea and soak it. Then, of course, if your infection has a scab over it, it's actually important to pick that scab off so that the uh, black walnut hull tea, for example, could actually enter that area. Um, so, or acorn leachate, you know, the tannic water from acorn processing in order to make it edible that also has um, properties against infections. So you have then... Yarrow has properties against infections. Generally, any aromatic plant has chemicals inside of itself to fight infection. And so then you think about what is the internal thing? Well, how inflamed am I? How is my body reacting to this? How far is the infection? And all of those would determine kind of how strong you need to get internally. But uh, pine sap, for example, you can swallow pine sap and it's antimicrobial, it's uh, anti-staph, all these factors. So it really depends on where you're at with you waited. Why did you wait? And this is the thing that I think our culture has to deal with. You know, if you slice your finger, um, it's good to, you know, 
cover it over. You know, if you take a week of not washing your hands and then look down and you're, you know, there's <laughs> uh, lines of staff running through your body, then it's going to be harder to treat. There are ways, but it's really a matter of why did you wait and why didn't you tend to it at the time? So it really depends on what stage or level someone's at, you know? Yeah. No, that's interesting. But so the, the black walnuts. Okay. So I've been pres- processing a lot of black walnuts lately. Yeah. And uh, which is pretty cool. I mean, it's just this year was the craziest crop I think we've ever had at my house. Yeah. It was a good year for black walnuts. Um, and I'm at the point now where it's like, man, I'm doing all these things and processing it, but I'm not utilizing the hulls. And yeah. so you're talking about the iodine and stuff. Would I extract that and just leave it in water and keep it? Or how would I keep it and preserve it and use it if I wanted to use it topically on a wound or something like that? So there's all kinds of ways of preserving things and then how you would apply it would change a little bit. So um, you you can, for example, what I did before it, they get buggy. You know, there'll be a point where once it gets black, there'll be tons of bugs in it, which, um, you know, is still medicinal, but I get them when they're green. I'll literally kick the hull to split it in half. I'll leave the nut to dry and then I'll dehydrate those hulls. So now I have a bag full of dehydrated hulls that I can powder. I could turn it into tincture. Um, and that's what I usually do fresh. So that's an alcohol extract, which means it extracts, but alcohol is also a preservative. If you use only water, of course, water is going to extract, but it's not going to be a preservative. So it'll get funky. And then the question is how funky and how moldy <laughs> And at some point your preservative has not succeeded unless you're trying to make some crazy stuff like for example through fermentation you might get a better wood stain um, because it also has wood staining capacities um, you know or paint right so now i have these black walnut hulls and i can powder them and i can add um, other elements i could add clay and i can make different layers levels textures consistencies of paints so that's one of the things i'm going to be making um, i've been working with how to make some decent black walnut wood stain, especially because my friend with his huge beams, he's got some mold on some of it. So then it's like, okay, what, what about black walnut as an antiseptic antifungal, which is known in the body. And the same is true if you rub that or apply that onto a piece of wood that has a fungal infection. So, you know, these are just a couple ways to work with them. And then the nuts are absolutely great. I actually, we preserved a whole bunch in honey. <laughs> so yeah. I have a jar of black walnut honey. You and I were talking about that. Uh, I, I asked you and I said, is, are you preserving it in the honey because of the high fat content? And, uh, and you're like, yeah, that's exactly why we do it. Cause it keeps them from going rancid. Cause yeah. that happens rather quickly with black walnuts. It seems like if uh, they're not preserved in some way, but well, um, it, unless you keep them in the shell, which I like to joke about how that's like the eco-friendly packaging of a black <laughs> walnut is if you dehydrate it and then keep it in the shell, as long as there's no superficial cracks that you can't see, it will store for years that way. Yeah, It which, will only start going rancid. Yeah, like after you crack it, then the chances of going rancid are faster. So let's say you get the cracks in it, like when they're actually curing, the you know, the shell is actually curing. Um, right. Does that affect it or does it have to be like a superficial one where like if you put it in a bucket of water, it would sink? Um, I mean, you know, like, float, sorry. you, you basically wouldn't really see the crack, but once you were cracking it open, you would, it would be rotten. And then that's just like every nut processing facility gets a couple bad nuts in their batch. Like I re, I remind people about like pistachios. If you eat a bag of commercial pistachios, you might get that one that's like super gross. Yeah. So with, with cracking them, the same thing is true. Like 99% of my black walnuts are fine. And every once in a while, I'll crack one open and it'll be rotten and I'll throw it on the ground. So that's just a natural part of it, you know. So let's go back to the, so when you were talking about ingesting the black walnut, like, you know, I've always heard, oh, black walnut's toxic. You know, it'll kill a horse, the sawdust, all that kind of stuff. Um, but so you can actually ingest it if you turn it into like a tincture or something like that. What would be like 
I understand different dosages for different things, but at any point, does it become harmful to you? I mean, everything becomes water is harmful if you drink too much, you know, so it's a matter of what is the spectrum. And I believe that the closer it is to eating the thing as it is, the less you have to worry about overdosing. The more you put things in a pill and you can't taste it, the less response your body can have to I've had enough of this. So when you're dealing with a tea, right, you can make black walnut hull tincture. It'll be kind of gross. So most people's case, any discomfort of flavor will be akin to them being poisoned. So, so much of it is our fear-based culture of anything that's uncomfortable is Mm going to kill you or is toxic for you. So black walnut hull has a safer threshold of dose than freaking Tylenol, you know? (laughs) But we act like we have this phobia about the wild or nature or natural medicines that we don't have against pharmaceutical companies. It's weird. They can, if Black Walnut had the lawsuits that Pfizer had against it, you know? <laughs> so, so we, we, there's a spectrum. So a dropper full, six droppers full. If you have parasites, six droppers full of Black Walnut tincture is a really good idea. Is it toxic for your liver? Well, what the hell kind of, uh, anti-parasitic are you going to get from a doctor and is that toxic for the liver and so we often think that plants are more toxic than uh pharmaceuticals and generally they're not right and so there's there's not a likeliness that anyone's gonna make themselves sick from black walnut and if you did you're probably really pushing it and probably the worst that's going to happen is you're going to get runny poop or throw up a couple times it's not like it's going to kill you. And that's just your body's way of actually eliminating whatever is uh, causing the uh, reaction. So that's natural. Yeah, I mean, that can be a sign of purgation, but it's also a sign of like, hey, don't push so hard. You know, like you're doing too much at once. Um, so are you saying most people would put it in a tea versus actual? And the tincture, so you're soaking it in the alcohol to, to get yep. it out, right? So... Like how long do you actually have to let it extract before you would take it and filter it or do what you're going to do to just keep the tincture? Generally approximately a month. And that came from the alchemist utilizing the moon cycle. So 28 days is a tincture cycle. And so there's, you know, the way of following those cycles and that would be a proper extraction after that, but you can leave it soak for longer, but eventually you would just strain it out and then, say vodka 40 40% 50% um gets you black walnut tincture and from there of course then a dropper full is an average dose and six droppers full is if you have parasites crawling out of your body so um you know that's the threshold that's hard to the information about utilization is what's missing. Like we've got health food stores with all this stuff in it, but the information about how to utilize it for what's actually happening to you takes a little bit more training, you know? understand. So you probably wouldn't want to use Everclear then because it's too high of a alcohol or would you have it's to just, It's just a waste of alcohol and it's gross. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I think it's, it tastes terrible. Um, but you know, if that's your thing, you could totally use Everclear. The other factor is it doesn't really need to be 95% alcohol. So if you buy Everclear and put half water in it, then you got more alcohol menstruum as it's called, you know, an alcohol and water, you know, vodka is alcohol plus water. Right. Everclear is vodka that has no water in it, you know? Yeah. So uh, generally 40, 50, 60% is a good range for most tinctures. That's interesting. So then like when you talk about, is it still a tincture that you're, you would use to like use as the iodine to treat a wound or would it actually yes. be, so you're still uh, using uh, the alcohol or would you not? Yes, you could, you could totally use an alcohol tincture. Um, it would extract the iodine as well as alcohol. I mean, for, for cuts, like, you know, I do a lot of wood carving. I'll slice my finger. I never have any issue I do not put anything in it. I'll literally sprinkle it with turmeric. I'll put a Band-Aid over it. I'll put a rubber band over the Band-Aid. I'll leave it for two days with turmeric in there. 
and then I'll take it off. And if I saw any infection, then I would hit it with alcohol. I don't sterilize. I don't rinse it. I don't do any of that stuff. So, so what's the turmeric do then? Is that like an, I mean, I understand like internally and maybe externally too, it's an anti-inflammatory type, but is it doing something else as well? It, it's a styptic, which means helps to coagulate blood. So because it's a powder, it's really easy to use. Um, so I like to carry it in my kit and stuff as for wounds. Um, and then also yarrow is a styptic, but that burns a little bit, you know, cayenne as well, that burns a lot. Um, so generally, it's just basically to uh, sop up the blood and stop the bleeding. So then like, would that be the same as like a, like a lamb's ear? What is a lamb's ear or something or a woolly lamb's ear or something like that? The plant. Well, there's mullen and then there's lamb's ear. And so, yeah, I mean, any, anything that's astringent to the taste would be a styptic. And that's the thing. There's a correlation between the six flavors and the way of identifying what plants actually do. So that was kind of the old way that our ancestors used to learn about plants. It wasn't just trial and error. It wasn't, oh, shit, Uncle Uncle Ugg, the caveman, died of this. It was more a matter of there's a system of understanding based on a nibble test what you're actually tasting. So if you go around the world, you don't nibble test poison ivy. You get to know the poisonous plants. You know, you get to know the people you shouldn't mingle with. And then from there, you know, that's what? 25 in north america and out of that you have what 300,000 plants so 25 of them are poisonous the rest of them you can nibble test and from a nibble test if you understand there are six flavors salty sweet sour astringent bitter and pungent then if you taste astringent if you understand how to detect astringency it's always going to be helpful for a cut so that's kind of the way that i try to remind people that there's a system and so that means you can go anywhere in the world and nibble test as long as you know what's really poisonous. But generally, a nibble test means smaller than your pinky nail. You chew, chew, chew. You get the taste. You spit it out. You, uh, you also can spit your spit out if you're really paranoid. And so generally, like probably, don't quote me on this, but if you did that with poison ivy, you'd have like an itchy tongue for a half hour. Unless you're really <laughs> sensitive, you know, unless you weren't born with a liver, you know, like there's always, there's always these stipulations, you know? Um, yeah. So like, can you kind of break down like those tastes and kind of like a category of what they'd be put in as far as plants, like just kind of like a rough idea of, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you think about sweet flavor is in a survival situation, the hardest flavor to get. And so put us to the fact that we're addicted to it. And so, uh, you know, raiding a bee, bee's nest is not an easy thing to be able to do very many times a year. Um, otherwise, you know, refined sugar is not an easy thing to do. Maple syruping, you know, and how much maple syrup can you get? Um, <clears throat> so we now have, you know, white sugar available by a dollar a pound in everywhere, in, including the convenience store, the dollar store, the grocery store, the gas station. Um, so now we're highly addicted to the sweet flavor. But if you look in nature, it's the hardest thing to find. And generally carbohydrates. So you think about building tissue. That's why, you know, too much sweet flavor causes obesity because it builds tissue. It also gives you a feeling of pleasure and 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 calms your mind. So that is nervine in the herbal terms. And so carbohydrates give you that chill out, that buzz. You eat oatmeal, you feel like, oh, <laughs> right? So that's kind of nervine and tonic to the body. Also building of tissue. Too much is bad. Not enough is bad. Just the right amount is good. So then the next one would be salty. And so again, salt is very hard to get in a survival or primitive living situation. Trading for seaweed is a full-time job. Um, and <laughs> finding salted plants is pretty hard in the middle of the country. Uh, salt deposits exist. And so again, we're overwhelmed with salty flavor, which is uh, more of a, a serious commodity, you know, 10,000 years ago. And uh, that one actually um, tightens and tonifies cell tissue. So it's actually astringent to the body. It helps to, you know, hydrate as well as tonify your veins, ligaments, tendons, et cetera. 
um, uh, sweet, salty, sour, right? Sour makes your mouth water. Your mouth uh, watering is actually glandular secretion. So that creates these secretions in your body. And you actually have a system called the endocrine system, which runs entirely on gland secretions. So helps to tonify the endocrine system. Um, thyroid, uh, ovaries, uh, pituitary pineal, you know, all this melatonin, all this extra stuff is just lack of sour in the diet, essentially. Thyroid issues can be balanced out with the sour flavor. And I like to always remind people like, oh, look at the coincidence of people with thyroid issues. What sour foods do they eat? What percentage of their diet? Barely anybody. Um, so then uh, astringent is a sensation more than it is a flavor when your mouth puckers like green tea or picking up a raw acorn and eating that thing. Don't recommend it, but you will taste the astringent flavor. Those always, again, tighten cell tissue. Um, so also helpful for cuts, right? But also helpful for diarrhea. Um, tighten cell tissue. Uh, let's see where we're at. Salty, sweet, sour, astringent, bitter, right? The bitter flavor always cleans the blood, liver, and aids in digestion. So what's the best bitter? The one that we're actually consuming. Um, and then pungent is fiery, right? So we know that fire actually increases metabolism in the body. So it's a helpful digestive aid, and it also can increase heat in the body. It also can increase um, anger, right? It also can increase, um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome. So all these have a pro and a con. And basically what we want to be doing is eating balancing these elements in our diets and yet people don't know anything about that <laughs> no i think balance is the is a huge thing there because if i have capsaicin in my diet on a regular basis but it's a regulated amount yep bowel movements are wonderful but right. then again you talk to people and they're like oh how can that be i eat a bunch of hot wings or whatever and i'm like well because you're mixing grease you know, fried yep. oils that are not right. natural oils, number one, and number two, right. an excessive amount of capsaicin. I said, <laughs> that's a recipe yeah. for disaster. <laughs> right. Well, that's the American sum is good, more must be better syndrome. <laughs> and like cayenne, like, so, right, if, if you're slow, sluggish, and you're constipated, cayenne can really be helpful. But if you're eating 45 hot wings, you're going to probably get explosive diarrhea. <laughs> you know, dosage is everything. Yeah. No, without a doubt. Um, so let's kind of talk about like bitter. You talked about like bitter and, and taste like that. So like what kind of plants would even like be in that realm of like the bitter? Um, are we talking like some of the like mugwort type stuff or i don't know what what would actually right. be bitter mugwort so mugwort would be classified as a bitter and astringent tasting plant so it has the crossover this is the great thing about plants they all have ratios of those different flavors some of them have one some of them have two some of them have three etc so within mugwort you have the bitter flavor and the astringent flavor and so it would help with tonifying and tightening cell tissue it would also help be helpful for cleaning the blood, liver, and also aiding digestion. You think about why do I need to aid digestion? I probably also need the tonification, the astringency to help my intestinal wall, right? So that would be a more complete, wider spectrum than just one or the other. Um, in the case of like somebody with intestinal problems, <laughs> too many hot wings, years of too many hot wings, right? So the bitter will... Uh, balance the hydrochloric acid levels it will clean the blood the lymph system then won't be so backed up the liver will be able to cleanse itself so it won't be on overload and the whole system will go back into balance you know um so generally those plants are interestingly enough our wonderful friend dandelions um burdock um, those are some of our more famous ones that people utilize. Motherwort is another garden herb that is bitter to the taste, but you know, I'm all for utilized dandelions. That's why they're there for. And, uh, sorry, I didn't write this rule, but if you don't taste it, you don't get as much of a medicinal effect, you know? So you're saying so then by blanching it and pan frying it and some type of animal fat or something, you're not getting the same nutrients if you ate it. Do that. Yeah. 
do that. And when you're picking it from the ground, just make sure you shove a couple in your mouth. Nibble some, you know, right? so. yep, nibble it as you go. You get your salad. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Nobody's praising the taste of vodka. You know, it's not like the best tasting thing. So if we're willing to, you know, cheers to our health at the bar, we could cheers to our health with a disgusting tasting dandelion. And then you're getting all the medicinal benefits. You're cleaning your liver. You know, all these wonderful vitamins and minerals that are in there, as well as your, you know, getting off the system by, you know, now it's, it's funny to look at now Wegmans and Whole Foods has bunches of dandelion, but it's all coming from France or Mexico. And it's like, we just had a campaign to get rid of dandelions out of people's <laughs> backyards. And now they're available for sale by the global market. And it's like, as long as it's from somewhere else in a nice package, we want to spend money on it. So my lawn, and I always tell people because like, I don't, I don't spray anything on it. I let it go natural. Uh, the only thing we do is cut it. And yeah. everybody's like, oh man, you've got, you know, this or that. And I'm like, yeah, I've got a garden <laughs> right. just growing naturally. And they're like, you're crazy. And I'm like, no, not really. There's so much food and medicine right here that you're not even realizing, like the white clover, red clover, yeah. um, you know, yeah. plantain, broad and narrow leaf, right? You know, all these different yeah. things. And I'm like, there's so much here that you don't even realize. And Like yarrow, I've got yarrow growing in my yard that just gets mowed down and it's super short all the time. But if I were to let it go, you'd see the flowers and all the other stuff. It's just, you, you just see the, the, the first start of the leaves on it. And it's pretty cool to see all those things and have all those. But like you were, you were talking about the burdock and it kind of makes me think, are we talking like the root of the burdock or the entire plant? Well, the entire plant, the leaves are the, if you want the most disgusting, bitter thing you've ever eaten in your life, eat, try to nibble on a burdock leaf. Um, so they are highly bitter, which means highly medicinal, um, but also generally the root is what's utilized just by the more palatability. But, you know, if you needed to simulate per some peristalsis in the old GI, if you nibbled, if you nibbled a little burdock, it would be the equivalent of eating, you know, 20 dandelion leaves. So um, it still has its medicinal value. It's just, uh, you know, how, how bad do you need it? <laughs> and, you know, to, to balance out Pepto-Bismol was never something that anybody liked to take. So, you know, we've put ourselves through trial with uh, synthetic garbage, <clears throat> and yet we're absolutely phobic of the wild, you know, just if it's uncomfortable. So, you know, you chew a bitter, bitter burdock leaf to stop your legs being amputated. If you have diabetes, like at some point, the unpleasant five minute taste once a day or twice a day is much better than getting surgically amputated. I think, Absolutely. you know, and so that, that's the hard thing about like making those choices to be a little uncomfortable in our mouths would really uh, reduce our dependency on pharmaceuticals, doctors, and everything that people like to complain about. But then they also like to complain about weeds in their lawns, which I would recommend is a is a total propaganda game mm -hmm. to get people thinking that the only thing in their backyards is astroturf, so that they become <laughs> entirely dependent on a global monetary system of soylent green burgers. And so that's another thing where that empowerment of knowing plantain is what are you talking about? That's Viking food since way back in the day, you know? And yeah. so we've carried these ancestral plants for thousands and thousands of years and now make fun of them. And yet that is also a sign of tremendous privilege because as long as global capitalism with infinite fossil fuels and those shipping barges and whatever the hell those things are doing right now, as <laughs> long as continues, <laughs> they're just chilling out, you know, they're just burning up fossil fuel, I'm sure. So as long as we have infinite resources to continue the exploitation, then we're going to continue to have these dietary privileges. But, you know, during World War II, the Great Depression, people were like, oh, shit, plantain. Hell yeah. <laughs> Lamb's quarter. Hey, look at that. Lamb's yeah, right. Yep. You know, they actually, yes. I, somebody, I don't know if it was you or somebody else, but they posted a thing that was like a flyer that they were putting out during 
uh, World War Two, you know, like we need to conserve the spinach to send to the troops, something, yeah. and you know, pick these common weeds in your yard and eat nice. them. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, one of them was lamb's quarter, and I can't can't remember yeah. what the other ones were, but it was kind of cool to see that. And it's like, hey, that right. wasn't even that long ago, and people were doing it. Why the heck aren't we doing it now? You know, right? How did we go back to sleep after that? You know, and 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 that's what I'm saying. Like that's pretty tactful. I mean. I like I like to also frame it in the fact it took a lot of time to you know hunter gatherer people would literally wake up and if their stomach felt the I'm hunger hungry feeling they look all over the ground you know that was their first primary food source look all over the ground and now we drive past thousands and thousands of pounds of free food while we mow it away and we go to a grocery store and it's just like gosh that was how the hell did you convince Neanderthals to stop looking on the ground for food. <laughs> you know, Dan, I'm not going to lie. I used to, uh, before this year is the first year that I've actually harvested as many walnuts as I have. Um, yeah. this year's actually been a Good. crazy year, but before then, I'm not going to lie. I used to hack them up with the lawnmower. <laughs> uh, I understand. And you know, and it's that's... like, man, I can't believe I used to do that. One dull my blades. Right. Uh, and two, or just rake them into piles and, and push them away, which um, I dump them in the back of my property. And now there's even more walnuts. Walnut, that's one thing about walnut trees. Is, I mean, they have the amazing ability to just pretty much start and grow anywhere. <laughs> like a lot yeah. of trees won't do that. But it seems yeah. like the walnut trees, I'm always picking them out of places they shouldn't be. Um, you know, right next to my house where they're going to crack the foundation or whatever. But right, right. It's almost right. like a mulberry. I mean, it'll literally grow anywhere. And what a wonderful yeah. resource that is. Well, that's the thing. Like, do we want diamond walnuts around Thanksgiving time that come from who knows where and is sprayed with who knows what? Or do we want black walnuts? And at some point, we need to remember that food and medicine primarily can grow from your wherever the concrete stops and so it's all a process of remembering i think everybody's remembering at the same time it's just like once you get that perspective and get over the sort of phobia of it you know it's like ew i'm not gonna eat that from my backyard and it's like where the hell's diamond getting their walnuts you know yeah Maybe the side of a road and somewhere and so we have you know a lot of a lot of ways of remembering this and and just like, you know, my first black walnut harvest was literally a lady was like 80 years old, spending all of her energy, raking them into a dang bag. And I literally saw her do that. And I was like, hey, do you mind if I take those? And I literally felt like I exploited 80 year old grandma's labor <laughs> in order to get a stash of black walnuts. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe that this is even happening. And so that's kind of like where my you know i think that's the cottage industry revolution i think that's the 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 wake up call to the culture is like localize your food systems and stop relying so much and it's amazing that you point out like the government was pushing lambs quarters like you know 50 years ago and now how did we kind of fall back to sleep and accept <laughs> roundup you know and roundup is obviously nobody wants to drink roundup or and so we're, <laughs> yeah, we're like spraying our own neighborhoods with cancer causing agents. The cancer rate is going up and we're phobic of black walnuts, you know, hormone blockers, all kinds of stuff. Uh, yeah, we, we could go into hours and hours of talks about that. But I want to ask you, one of the things you said was about eating and tasting the stringent taste of um, the tan mm. is it the tannins in an acorn that it would be the stringent taste that you were talking about and if so yeah. i mean that's kind of a, a probably not something you would want though because that's kind of the wrong direction right because it is a non-nutritive type uh tannin right it's going to block like certain nutrients or are you talking just like a taste okay so you have the amount of tannin that's in green tea is good for you Right. The amount of tannin that's in acorns is too high for you. Okay. So when you're leaching that out, that's it's too high of a concentration of tannin. Tannic acid is medicinal at some dose and toxic at if you want to inject the water in your veins, it's probably toxic. Otherwise, <laughs> by consumption, you just get constipated and you'd regret it. Um and then if you're eating acorns, you're going to taste this horrible feeling. And at some point, 
you know, your stomach is going to say, stop, right. <laughs> stop the man. <laughs> this isn't making sense. And all our ancestors knew that all you have to do is leach that out because it's water soluble. And so once you get the leached water out, then acorn is amazing to eat. I've been eating a lot of acorn this year. That's one thing really I did good. not put up this year. And I really wanted to, I just didn't, didn't have the time at the moment to go out and collect and, and uh, do that. But I'm going to have a ton of black walnuts. I'm going to have to leave some in the shell. Uh, I'm definitely going to preserve some in honey um, because that looks pretty cool. And, I mean, then you get the black walnut flavor in the honey. I mean, it's kind of like the best of both worlds, right? I've seen you've been putting them a lot on pancakes, so that's something uh, definitely to try. It'd be good if they were acorn pancakes too, but. um. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've been doing some of that stuff. That's the, you know, it's been the fun thing of uh, teaching classes uh, specifically around those things like i did an acorn specific class and so you know i pre-soaked some we cooked them there and then we also cracked a whole bunch we you know went through all the stages and so that feels like i want to continue to get people who are really serious about doing that you know we went out and planted more more oak trees with the acorns so that's kind of the maybe the regenerative system that can uh, start competing with exoticism of our food system. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool doing that. And like I was just telling my buddy, you know, like you're talking about planting the the acorns and trying, you know, you know, populate more oak trees. And I was telling him how I wanted to do that and become the Johnny Appleseed of pawpaws and just plant them everywhere. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I I don't have. I have yet to discover on any of my travels or hunting grounds where I live in the northern portion of Illinois anywhere. Just have never found them. Maybe they exist. Pa- I don't Papa? think they Yeah. I wonder. The I old... mean, you got to follow the river, the riverways. You know? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, that's like my, yeah. like, I love hunting rivers. And so in my travels, ah. I've never discovered pawpaws in any of these yeah. areas. But... Yeah. One of the things I want to do is try and like propagate them and put them everywhere. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, was, I have a buddy that grows them and grows them in his yard and stuff. And that's mm-hmm. the only way I've ever actually experienced the the wonderful custardy flavor of a pawpaw. And, yeah. uh, and I want to, I told him, I was like, I want some plants. I want to plant them in my yard. Just, I'm going to carry a pocket full of seeds and plant them everywhere. But yeah, you know, so uh, yeah, no, that's pretty cool. I get it. I uh, have probably planted a good two or 3,000 pawpaw seeds in my life. And uh, I went on specific tours to harvest and uh, gather up seeds. And it's very important to remember that if the seeds dry out, they're not viable anymore. So you got to keep them in water and then they need a frost. So you either put them in the fridge over winter or you just plant them in the fall when the pawpaws would drop. And uh, I've done these like whole initiatives for uh, I shipped out probably three or 400 seeds of pawpaw in the last two years, just getting them to people to plant them in their backyards. That's cool. I'm not going to lie. I'm probably going to put them places I shouldn't, but I don't care. I want, I want pawpaws everywhere. So pawpaw revolution. Yes. There's your uh, jobs, your uh, (laughs) local green jobs, you know, I like your green deal. (laughs) <laughs> so dan it's been good it's been wonderful talking to you i feel like we could probably talk all night but uh probably need to wrap this up so if people are wanting to get in touch with you maybe take some classes from you follow you on social media where can they do all that and uh what's what's the name of your uh your pages and and the business that you're uh the apothecary if you yeah want. so uh yeah, my website is returntonature.us. And then on Instagram, I'm return to nature. Um, on YouTube, return to nature skills. And on Facebook, return to nature skills. And um, specifically in northern New Jersey. So that's pretty much my stomping grounds for now. Feeling to uh, not do too much travel this year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. It's been good, and I appreciate you coming on and uh, talking you. to us and sharing knowledge, and and uh, hopefully maybe we can have you back on and, and learn some more as uh, I evolve and learn throughout this journey. So, 
Yeah, thanks for doing it. Thanks for uh, having me on. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment